This is a crypto finance podcast. We are holding internal knowledge sessions and publish selected episodes to share our know-how and experience with you. Two weeks ago, we did the education session by Berner about um, the introduction into DeFi, what that does, how to pronounce it. Um, this time we will look at uh, some specific projects and about the current situation of the hype. I hope it's going to be fun. All right, thanks for joining. I will add to the topics we discussed two weeks ago and then dive into some details later on. First of all, there is always this term yield farming um, going around or liquidity mining. I will come to that a bit later, but in uh, it, it seems to get misused quite a bit in, in the community. and. It, it looks like people don't really know what it is. They just use it because they see it everywhere. But it, it is quite specific what, what, what they do. To be able to generate the yield, you need to take certain risks. Otherwise, there is no yield or no return on an investment if there are no risks. You guys discussed quickly about the risks. In my view, there are four categories of risk you enter when you interact in DeFi. Technological risk smart contracts and the codes behind you deploy any of your capital economics um, if there are flaws in the concept of the contract and the way the, the DeFi project would like to make some money or um, help the community centralization big one um, some of the governance tokens um, of certain projects they're not decentralized they basically or that the project team owns most of those tokens so it's not decentralized and then any change can be made or forced by the team that's basically counterparty yeah yeah call it counterparty risk and then um, regulatory risk some of that decentralization risk is regulatory risk but there is also the risk that some of the regulators come in and shut down a project even though they claim it, it's decentralized and there is no legal authority behind or no one can, no one is actually responsible for it. But still, there is a regulatory risk that some of these platforms get shut down and you might not going to get your, um, uh, your money out. There is also the effect of dollar liquidity not being used efficiently in the whole uh, DeFi space. Um, it's still not that easy to put in or shuffle in dollars from the outside world into the crypto space. We see that in the, the normal trading on Bitcoin and Ether that when the market is bullish, there is always not enough dollars in the system and people need to use leverage or margining contracts to fulfill client needs. And that obviously generates a yield as well. Then you guys talked about the TVL, Total Value Locked. DeFi Pulse is one of the web pages where you can um, have a look at it. But there are quite a few, I would say, good research papers about the number uh, available. And that number is way too high on DeFi Pulse. They say it's roughly 6.7 billion right now. But they double or triple count some of these flows within the ecosystem. You can um, make a point that in the traditional finance, um, banks do the same. They double and triple count assets under management as well. But if you 
if you do it right, and that guy I followed with his report, he he adds up about 3.5 billion of dollars being deployed in in DeFi, like proper capital, not double counted, which is quite a big amount, I would say. Then the diversification of the capital, there is 10% coming from BTC holders, 30% from ETH holders, and 60% are DeFi tokens, governance tokens, or I call them uh, yield tokens. So all these tokens you get, um, YUSD or, um, or YREN or whatever the, the token uh, name then is, but it's the token you get back if you do liquidity mining or if you do um, yield farming, which is the kind of key to your um, to your return. Um, what I also think is quite important to to understand is there are different kind of sections in DeFi. You have platforms, and I, I talk about infrastructure platforms: Ethereum, EOS, Tron. And then you got as well now Solana, Cosmos, and Polkadot. Solana, Cosmos, and Polkadot are multi-chain infrastructure platforms. Quite important, I believe, because in the future they will they will run the show. And then you got Ether, EOS, and, and Tron, which are just for their specific chain. But on Ether, obviously everyone knows, about 80% of DeFi runs on Ether and only on Ether or Ethereum. Then you got trading platforms as well. Here you got two types. You got the Uniswap, the Balancer, the Curve, the Yearn. Those are non-exchanges. They are token swap platforms. There is no order book. There is no matching. It's just um, a pool of liquidity where automated market making bots trying to keep pool balanced um, at the price they believe should be the right price. The bots will make sure or try to make sure that the price is similar to the, the price you get on centralized exchanges. Then you have DYDX or synthetics, which are trading platforms, decentralized trading platforms, but on the derivative side, I think there is that's the spot where DeFi can really grow massively on multi-chain, decentralized, leveraged or um, derivative platforms. Then you got oracles. You talked about it quickly. You got uh, Chainlink is one of them. Band was quite popular over the past few weeks, had a, a, a pretty brutal rally. Torchain, which is R-U-N-E as the token. They're not used for everything on DeFi, but for some platforms or for some business ideas, they're needed. But for example, um, Uniswap doesn't need an Oracle. They don't need any outside price discovery tools. And they started to have insurance, um, an insurance section as well. Um, Nexus Mutual Tracker, NXM is one of them. They just started and they tried to ensure certain um, I try to, to understand it, but it, it's quite difficult. Um, they, they try to ensure certain smart contract functionalities. But I think if, if a legal guy would look at it, there, there are quite a few flaws in it, I, I guess. 
If you look at the token categories, we quickly talked about it um, earlier, you got those yield tokens. So the tokens you get if you do yield farming or yield mining, those are the tokens with the, the funny um, Y, I, and S um, letter, and then Y, I, S, USD, Y, USD. And then you got the governance tokens, which is the other concept of getting the reward in, in a governance um, token when you do uh, provide liquidity. Now, a lot of people asked me before I started to do this um, session, I don't understand where do you make money? Where is that yield coming from people talk about? Well, first of all, you need to be very um, careful when you start to compare yields. Most of these platforms put the yield up as um, annual rate yield or annual rate of return. Those are two different things. The um, ARY is with the compounding effect. And obviously that rate will look silly and very high very quickly if the rate gets to a certain level for, um, for, a, daily, for a daily rate. And the um, ARR is the more comparable rate which has the return plus all the fees you pay deducted from it it's the more cleaner rate. And those rates are usually a lot lower than the uh, APY rates. For example, on Uniswap, it's, it's a very simple example. You have BTCs and you don't want to sell it, but you, you do want to earn some uh, money on your long BTC position. You can deposit those BTCs into a Uniswap pool for example, BTC REN or BTC, BTC Synthetics. You put it in and when people use the pool to trade, you get a share of the trading fees they pay. And if some guys trade large amounts um, through that pool, the bid offer spread gets automatically quite wide and you pay a lot of slippage and you're also entitled to get to earn some of that slippage. So the risk you take is the smart contract you put in your wrapped BTCs for that liquidity pool. And if the other token, the other side of your pool is a really shitty token, if that token goes to zero, your BTCs will in, in fact go to zero too because the pool is always balanced. So you take the risk as well of the other token, you place your money into the pool. There are quite a few sophisticated uh, pools. For example, Balancer doesn't do dual token pools. They do multi-token pools. So they try to figure out the balance, like a portfolio balance of um, the tokens in it and try to balance the pool of, of these tokens. And this is basically the purest, the purest way of um, do some liquidity mining or yield farming. Then there is the other type of... Sorry, still the question then, where does it come from? So you, you, you take the risk of mm -hmm. all the others collapsing, mm -hmm. uh, and for that you get compensated in the thing that you put in. Mm -hmm. Okay, but where does that come from? From the trading activity, from the people who use the pool. So if, um, if I put in my red BTCs against um, synthetics, um, I own 10% of the pool. You do a trade, 
and your fee is a thousand dollars you paid, I get ten percent of your fees you paid. I do a trade. What, what does that mean? Well, you you go to Uniswap and you want to um, flip your synthetics against Red BTC because that's what the pool is offering. And if you decide to do it and you you like the price, you pay um, a certain amount of fee and the share. I have on off the pool, I get that share of your fees. Okay, so it's it's similar to a banker contract. Yeah, correct. Uh, plus fees, and the fees go to the liquidity provider yeah. in either of the currencies. Yeah. How can uh, how does the price in these things compare to the price that you would pay in a banker contract? I mean, if you mm -hmm. if you have to pay the fee, is it attractive to to, to trade against that? Um, what I when I read a few of these Uniswap um, papers and a few um, Twitter threads, it looks like that Uniswap is quite cheap in terms of trading fees. But the the gas issue was already raised last time. Um, it is is it is killing the trading right now. It's it's way too expensive. Okay, but, but even during highest times last Thursday, it was like 40, 50 bucks for a, for a standard transaction. Mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure how complex that contract is, but if, if uh, and that it doesn't depend on the amount that I, that I trade. So if, if that already. But, but that's the point. Um, DeFi or DeFi or yeah, DeFi is not for large trading, it is for small amounts. And then it gets unattractive, unattractive very quickly. We have seen two weeks ago an Ether trade on Uniswap, Ether against, I think it was against uh, USDT, 15 million USDT um, they had to, to buy Ether. They paid over $120 slippage. So the, the Uniswap pools are not for large trades. It gets quickly very, um, very expensive to to trade, but for small stuff. And if the, the gas is the gas fees are quite low, it it it's a lot cheaper than trading through a uh, centralized exchange. That's what I read about um, out of of their um, conversations. I never traded on Uniswap. Okay. I mean, uh, what I what I also don't understand is. When you said that you, you you take the risk of the counter um, currency uh, dropping, so if I have my rep BTC and I do that against USDT, whatever, um, I do have the risk of USDT dropping. Weird example, but yeah. So, but but that's not really the case, right? Not only if it would like drop to zero, do I lose my Bitcoin, but also if that drops ten percent, I lose five percent of my Bitcoin. You lose. Well, you get. Yes, you lose five percent of your Bitcoin because you get more of the the worst currency. It's essentially, I offer to somebody a hedge that I accept getting the worst of the two currencies back, yeah. or more of the worst of the two currencies. Correct. Yeah. And it can also go the other way around, right? Yes. So I will, if you I will provide never get the bad one, one, then you get bad one. Yeah, if I provide, I mean, in this example, the USDT, then I might end up with more BTC, but that will only happen if the price of BTC drops. Because I, as a liquidity provider, I cannot decide which way, way it goes. As the trader, uh, you can decide which way it goes. Mm -hmm. So you will always um, have the, it's an option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does not sound terribly attractive to me. It does not really sound like uh, like free yield. It's not, that, 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 well, that's what I said at the beginning. There's no free yield. 
Okay, but how do you how do you even define um, a, a yield if the thing that you are paid back in is a different currency than the thing that you pay in? So, I mean, uh, a yield is somewhat. Uh, I give you something, you give it back with yield, but you mm -hmm. give somewhat the same currency back with yield. Mm -hmm. uh, if here I, I have like I will get a different ratio of, uh, of what I put in uh, back in a different currency, um, that's not attractive. That's well, that's that's what I believe is where the the whole community goes quite wrong by talking about yields. Okay, but it's yeah. it, it's the only thing people understand. Or let's put it that way: it was when it started, it was what the market was looking for. People were looking for to to place their their bags somewhere to get some in return, and the interest rate was the easiest way. To 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 lure them in. Okay, but if I put Bitcoin in into this Bitcoin USDT, wrapped Bitcoin USDT, um, can I and and like a few days later I want out? Can I decide in which of the two currencies, wrapped BTC or USDT, I want out? No, you can only go out in what you've put into the pool. Okay, and then I will get more or less depending how the price developed and how the fees developed that came out. Yeah. Um, additionally, there are quite a few good tools out there for analytics. Um, Dune Analytics is plotting trading volumes, pool sizes, number of trades, which are all um, variables you need to you need to look at and check if it's if it's worth to put some money into that pool. The smaller the pool, the less the pool is trading. You have the risk that the price of the pool will be quite far out to where the centralized exchange market is trading because the automated market making bots are focused on the big pools and on the more higher cap currencies. And for the real small stuff, it, it gets out of whack quite a bit, especially when the market moves quickly. Five, ten percent. These Uniswap pools are all over the shop, and it's the risk you take then that one of your pools is completely off and someone is picking you off. DeFi Pulse is giving you total value locked, which is also quite a, an okay matrix to, just to look at how much dollar is in the ecosystem. Again, when I look at where the money is coming from, from BTC, from Ether, and 60% of DeFi tokens. I don't see any Google search rise of DeFi. It is not fresh money coming in. It is too complicated. So none of the fresh guys will come into the market and go into DeFi straight away. That, that will not happen because it's, it is even for me, it's complicated to use and it's complicated to understand what risks I take for what return I actually get at the end. So we believe a lot of, let's call it, old bag holders are moving around and try to leverage their massive bag tokens to make some extra money out of it. And it's especially in the governance token space, it was quite easy to pump them. I mean, I've, I've been in the Curve group. Curve.finance is, uh, we can talk about it um, a bit later. They do stablecoin placements so you can basically put money into curve and curve will pu put your dollar stablecoin 
into the right pools or into the pools which give you the highest return back without you doing anything. You just tell them, just place it, I need it back in a week and you get the best return on it. Anyways, in that Curve Telegram group, it was all the worst of the worst pump and dump before that token got listed on Binance. And when you went through the, the 2017 ICO hype, it was exactly the same. And that token um, got hyped up to $50, even though it should be a token and the market cap of far less. And they traded, I think, 30 seconds at 50, and then it went down to $3.50. And there are no buyers right now. And the, the supply which comes in, and this is always something people don't really understand. You really need to check how much supply is coming in when of these governance tokens. And it's now just the supply is just hitting the market and the Uniswap pools of um, liquidity miners who um, provide liquidity for the curve token and they just dump it on, on the market. Does any one of you have an idea of what the usual or the, the average yields are you can, you can generate on DeFi if you place stable coins, dollar? You probably know what the dollar rates are, more or less. What do you think you can earn on curve if you place? Now, yield or annualized return? Let's do annualized return, deducting the fees. So APR. 10%. You got 10%? 6%. How much? 6 6%. I saw 20. 20, okay. Um, the stablecoin market is quite easy to read. If the market is bullish, then dollars are expensive. Um, we are at the highest pool I have seen today was 46%. But I haven't checked the details of the pool, how big and, and what, um, where would they um, channel it through. But before we had the bull run, those dollar stable coins were roughly at 6% annualized yield. So you, you, there was almost no compensation for all the risks you take to put some of um, your stable coins in. But some of um, that stable coin hype got definitely increased by um, DeFi because there are some, um, let's call it treasury operations of cryptocurrency um, companies. They not only want to own Bitcoin and Ethereum or any of the cryptocurrencies, they also want to own dollar and in stable coins because it's easier for them to move around and and now they have the additional that they have the possibility to even generate some yield um, compared to when they would leave the real dollars on their dollar account with their banks so it it helped to um to increase the stable coin market now what I would like to do is focus on real use cases. When I look at Uniswap or when I look at um, yield farming for Yearn or um, Yam was a, was a very good example, then I, then I actually don't see any. It is just 
an interesting idea to, to play around with, but there is no one who commercially needs a loan and does something with it in the ecosystem. And there is actually no one um, willing to lend out uncollateralized some money to get something in return. It, it, it's just not there. What about all these nice ideas about making money available, loans available to people that need it without having to go through an intermediary because unbanked, un underbanked, whatever you want to call mm -hmm. there, li liquidity, mm -hmm. capping until I get my next salary or whatever. These are the ideas these people talk about, right? Aave is doing that. They have a um, borrowing lending or actually just a lending facility and their latest um, second layer protocol is um, credit delegation. A credit delegation is nothing more than a micro lending platform. And even if you do it centralized, like they have it in India, for example, it, it works quite efficient. I, I don't think I need Aave to do microcrediting, but it's that's probably the, the one and only use case in the lending space why or where DeFi can help to make things easier and quicker and more anonymous than in the banking, in the in the normal banking world. But where I believe the, the real use case comes in is when you're able to tokenize pretty much anything in the non-crypto and blockchain world and put it on the blockchain, especially if you have multi-chains and you can link certain assets with uh, information you need from other chains together. There I see that you can open a new playing field for smaller earning people than just the high, the ultra high net worth guys who can do it with a bank. Yeah, no middleman and at some point. Except that you don't have lower fees, right? I mean, well, at the moment you don't have lower fees because yeah, Ethereum is going to be used, the higher fees yeah. will be. And it's certainly not no middleman if you talk about tokenizing something off chain or um, bridging chains. This will not work in a, in a uh, without centralized parties that act there as the oracles. Why would you need them? If you can make the market efficient, it doesn't really matter, right? You don't need an oracle. It's just the price of the market. So if I have something to tokenized in a pool or wherever, and enough people trade, then I have to see market price. And, okay, maybe I misunderstand what you're looking for, but I mean the, the, the current version that you have, which is like somewhat cross-chain, is wrapped to BTC. Mm. Is that of the category that you're talking about? No. What do you then look for? I would look for that you have certain information concerning either the asset or the buyer or the seller of the asset information on a, on a blockchain. For whatever reason, it's on blockchain X and you have the asset on blockchain Y. But they do need to interact with each other and you might have the buyer on another blockchain, the asset on this blockchain, and the seller on that blockchain. Is it a foregone conclusion for you that this will be possible? Um, when I read stuff um, Solana is trying to do, I believe it's, it's doable, or they believe it's doable. What about mm -hmm. the regulatory aspects in this? 
we don't even know what what assets we're talking about and if there's a regulator involved but are you, there regulators in uh, in art dealing yeah but if you tokenize something and then this is like with a seller and the buyer what does the buyer get and how does the buyer get it legally binding through smart contracts through the second layer protocols on these blockchains wait 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 wait, wait, wait. Okay, so what is being tokenized? Was the, the art now an example to show there, there is a market which is not being regulated? Or if you talk about something is being tokenized on chain, you talk about art? That was just an example. Because okay. it's an easy example because you, need a, you don't need a price oracle because no one knows the price and I don't think there is a lot of regulation around in art. Either. Okay, but, but I mean, uh, the, the point stands that uh, in order to have legally binding that somebody is the owner of the piece of art so that he can also like, go there and demand that the piece of art is being handed over to him. Uh, there needs to be some, maybe not necessary regulation, but at least that the local enforcement agencies uh, acknowledge that that thing is going on on chain. And see, whenever you have like the real world interacting with the, uh, with the blockchain, then you have two problems. You have Oracle feeding information from the real world into the into the blockchain and you have enforcement uh, enacting information on the blockchain back in the real world. This is, I, I, I mean, those enforcement agencies will include like conditions mm -hmm. under which they do it, which is then kind of regulation. But for example, the Grundbuch in Switzerland is a, for me the perfect example. It's the, the clumsiest thing ever that exists, which is the only piece of paper that gives me the right that I own a plot of land. And let's not overcomplicate it. I can do a drawing right now, sell it to you, how I see you accept me and give me the money. I don't need a contract for anything. And that's still legally enforceable. So why shouldn't the blockchain be? I just have to go, go to court and prove it. But if I say something that's already a contract, right? Sure, but it's, it's, it's now about interoperability from that chain to another chain to another chain on something which is tokenized by you saying, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's, you, you do need some stronger, more systematic approach, more standardization of contracts in order to be uh, reasonably sure that after all this tokenization orgy, uh, there is still some impossibility left. Mm -hmm. Or am I being agreed? Agreed. But isn't that the beauty of um, of writing a software piece of coding? That the beauty of blockchain that something that everything that happens on the blockchain is somewhat mm -hmm. auditable and verifiable. Mm -hmm. On and off ramps are very much an answer. Mm -hmm. And I acknowledge that there are interesting approaches uh, going on, but it's it's not a solved problem in, in any stretch of the world. And it's a fog. It's it's not a foregone conclusion that will be solved. Might might also be very soon, but it might also not. Agreed. But to me, that's the only future use case. Then, from just playing around a bit with a few smart contracts and move money around and make some extra out of it to make something more efficient for everybody. So we are currently in a play around and learning phase. Yeah. Like how how Cardano, before launching uh, Shelly uh, with their staking, they had an incentivized testnet where there was some value on the stake um, and, and some value to be gained if you behaved in the, in the sense of the prospect in order to, to put in real incentives to the game theory. But 
it was small months and still tested and playing around. Is that the phase that we are currently in? Yes. I would like to read a quick um, sentences out of um, the YAM token project where they put um, a Medium article out and explained the project and what, what it does. And they said under the topic, the future, the future will be entirely controlled by the community of YAM holders. Again, YAM holds zero inherent value. Any value which might accrue would be an entirely emergent property of the community that takes control. And people hyped this thing several hundred dollars up and they wrote it in the paper. It has no inherent value. And I think well, that for does Bitcoin, like we had an education session about that. If you replace the word inherent by intrinsic, get out of thesaurus and you will find it's the same thing. Yeah, but at least it is, it has been around for quite a bit and it, it, it proved some resilience. This smart contract with a flaw that in the end was around for 30 days. And people gave you the market cap of 1.5 billion. Yeah, that, that very much uh, reminds me of the time of the DAO, where uh, I mean, for those people that were not around, that was like a um, decentralized VC fund uh, where you can put in money and vote on the projects that are being funded from that. And 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 the developers were very careful, very they were very okay. This is an experiment. We are not sure what's going to be to happen. And people threw in 150 million dollar within days, and that was the very early days where this was a significant market share of the overall Ethereum, uh, and where that went horribly wrong, which led to uh, a bailout on Ethereum blockchain essentially. So, are we now in a situation where that can could happen again, where uh, where we would see something failing that is so much too big to fail? That the that history repeats. Ooh. Don't know. Never say never. I mean, if 150 million dollar happens again, don't know. There is no bailout. Like the size of the DAO and, and absolute sizes, that doesn't warrant anything anymore. But if something like 20% of Ether are uh, in such a project and it fails, uh, I would not be really surprised if something of that type. I mean, if if a project, if single project can accrue 20% of Ether. And that might then fail. Uh, we might end up in a situation where the move to proof of stake would be very much dangerous with so much centralized ether with one malicious party. Mm -hmm. So they would fail, of course. They would. Most probably, yeah. But isn't that every other project has exactly the same issue? Solana, AOS, Tron, Cosmos. Yeah, yeah, we, we did have a session about the game theory of blockchains. That's not the consensus mechanism. I'm not sure if you published that actually, but um, uh, but, but yeah, that that is always a problem. Any specific questions to Davy or to a project? Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Crypto Finance. We are happy to receive comments and feedback. Email your thoughts to research at cryptofinance.ch